Well, we're launching a whole new series for uh, this, this Sunday and through the Sundays in May. I'm really excited about that. A series on, on serving. If you were to describe Christianity from the outside, you know, what you see, you could say that it's all about serving. Wherever followers of Jesus have been present, needs have been met, people have been loved, hurts have been healed, life has been nurtured, the lost have been found. This has been true down through history from the earliest Christians who would, who would rummage through the garbage heaps of Rome to discover and find Babies that have been rejected for various reasons, left exposed to die, gathering them up, bringing them home, raising them as their own. And down through the centuries, Christians have been caring for the sick, founding hospitals, starting schools, feeding and educating the poorest of the poor, advocating for labor protections, particularly for children, campaigning against animal cruelty, seeking the abolition of slavery, protecting cultures and languages protecting unborn children. And while mistakes have been made in history, we could talk about them, lots of mistakes, history still tells the greater story that Christians serve. And what's been true historically is is still true today. We serve. In fact, you could say that following Jesus finds its clearest expression through the simple service that his people offer to this world, both the people and the planet, in the name of Jesus. The Erickson Covenant Church is made up of many servants who have served for many years. From the earliest beginnings of of this fellowship in, in the late 30s, this church was founded in 1939, we have served people in this valley. We've served kids through how many thousands of kids have come through the Sunday school or the, or the kids' camps programs that have been shepherded and cared for and given to by the Erickson Covenant Church? We've served families in our valley for generations. We've given money to support new churches. Members of this church gave money to support new building projects um, of this church and other churches. We've served by loving our neighbors day in, day out. We've served by sharing the good news of Jesus and Every week, every day, since 1939, members of this congregation, people who are part of the Erickson Covenant Church, have served this valley in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that. And we continue to do so each and every week. You continue to inspire me with the way that you serve your neighbor, your valley, the way you serve in your schools, the way you serve in your workplaces, the way you serve in your community, the the way you just simply love others in the name of Jesus here in this valley. So many ways you serve. In, in most ways unnoticed, right? Unnoticed by others. Unnoticed by, by the wider world. And it doesn't matter to you. You simply serve because Jesus has called you to serve and you, you inspire me. For the next six weeks, we're going to explore different aspects of service. My hope is that we'll be inspired by Jesus. We'll be inspired by each other. And that each one of us will see and grow maybe in in how much serving makes a difference. And we'll be encouraged, I think, by Jesus' work among us and through us. 
We're not going to cover, cover every aspect of service. That wouldn't be possible. But we're going, to, we're going to pull service out of the box. We're going to look at it from different angles. We're going to reflect on the variety of ways that we serve and how we serve and why we serve and what underpins service and even some of the ways that in the different places we do serve. And I'm excited that through this series, I won't be the only one sharing on this. There'll be others who will join this conversation who will share out of their experience of service, different brothers and, and sisters over the course of this, of this series. Here's the truth. Many have summarized the, the good news about Jesus with the phrase, Jesus saves. And that's true. But you could just as easily summarize it with the phrase, Jesus serves. In fact, Jesus understood his service as the means of our Salvation. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus understood his service as the means of our salvation. That because Jesus served us, he saved us. Serving is central to the mission of Jesus. And the same is true of us. Jesus invited us into his mission through service. And when the church of Jesus serves, the work of Jesus grows. When the, when the church of Jesus serves, the lives of people change. When the church of Jesus serves, the good news about Jesus gains credibility. When the church of Jesus serves, the mission of Jesus continues. Jesus served the world so he could save the world. Have you ever considered that? And he calls us to do the same to make his salvation known and experienced and tangible and real through the ways that we give our lives in service in his name. And when the church serves the way that Jesus has called us to serve, we stand out in contrast to the rest of the world. Remember what Jesus said when he called his disciples, (laughs) you know, trying to shove someone aside so they can get a little closer to the front of the line. Remember that? jockeying for position, who's going to be the greatest, even, even getting their mom involved to try to, you know, get them to the head of the line. Remember how Jesus responded to that? In Mark chapter 10, he said, he calls them all together, and, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, and they knew that. I mean, that was the way the world worked, Right? There's always somebody there who's your boss. There's always somebody there of a higher position. There's always somebody there that is going to put you back in line if you step out of it. That's how their culture worked, and arguably sometimes that's our experience as well. And they knew that, yes. In fact, the goal then was to somehow move yourself up the chain to get into a better position. Or at least that's what they thought. But Jesus goes on. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus used to refer to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus serves. And do you notice how we talked about service here? Just as serving was central to the mission of Jesus, 
It's also central to our discipleship. Following Jesus equals serving. Period. And that contrast in there, the the not so with you that Jesus emphasized is so important to get. Jesus wants us to see that contrast clearly. Others will seek position. Not so with you. Others will exploit. Not so with you. People at work may seek their own advantage. Not so with you. People at school may think only of themselves. Not so with you. Your wife might push you around. Not so with you. Your neighbor might chuck stuff over the fence. Not so with you. People may serve themselves. Not so with you. And this not so with you. Through this not so with you, Jesus redefines the way we think, the way we, way we live, the way we position ourselves, the way we work, the way we lead, the way we parent, the way we volunteer, the way we give, the way we serve. He redefines it all. And that's where we're going to be going for the next six weeks, looking at ways that we serve, the ways that we are, you know, it is not so with us. In contrast to many other ways people live and practice life. We're going to follow Jesus in his not-so-with-you kind of way of living. We're going to explore ways that we serve in the name of Jesus for the sake of the world. That's the series we're entering into, and that was all just introduction to the series. That's not even the sermon for today. Today, as we launch this series, we're going to start by getting the big picture. You know, last week, we finished the book of Revelation. And Dave, thinking he was being so funny, prepping for today, came up to me and said, well, next week are we going to start with Genesis 1? How did he know? (laughs) Oh, man. You know, the Bible is that kind of a book. It's so good that when you finish it, you just want to go back to the start and start again. But that's not actually why we're doing that today. The reason is, is because in order to really understand serving, we need to understand how God has created us as servants, particularly within his creation. So today we start with there, with that. How do we serve God? By caring for his creation. Let's unpack this for a minute. When God created the world, he gave his human images, that's us, human beings, a special role within creation. The first book of the Bible, called Genesis, describes the genesis of the earth, the stars, the plants, the animals, as as well as the humans, and it, it leads through a series of events up to the genesis of God's people through the family of Abraham. And after Genesis 12, everything has to do with this one family from whom, or you could say, is also the genesis of Jesus, the man. This is the family through which Jesus comes. The earliest chapters of Genesis give us two creation stories. It's, it's almost like these stories. You can think of them this way. It's almost like they're two stories that are positioned, positioned from two different camera angles, each capturing a unique perspective on God's creation. 
Some have suggested that the first creation story, which is most of chapter 1 and a few verses at the start of chapter 2, is kind of like seeing creation unfold from the 10,000 foot level. Whereas Genesis 2 is more like a low level flyby. We can get close enough to see the whites of the eyes and smell the trees and, you know, taste the delights of the garden. The different perspectives come together, though, to, to offer us important insight about our purpose, to show us why we are here, why we've been created in the image of God. This is how it rolls out in Genesis. From camera A, <laughs> Genesis 1. After creation explodes into life in response to God's daily word, God then decides to top off his creative project by making something that is both part of creation and yet is like him. Similar to himself. God creates images of himself within creation. And we've noted this before. I mean, one of the top prohibitions in the Old Testament is that you don't make images of God and worship them, right? No images of God, and yet here at the very start, God makes images of himself. The, the connection there is the only images of God that are allowed in creation are human beings who aren't meant to worship. We aren't meant to worship them, but they're meant to reflect who God is. God creates images of himself within creation. Listen to this. This is God speaking. He says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So here's the 10,000 foot level. God blesses his human images to fill and govern his good earth. In fact, filling and governing the earth is the only task that these human images of God are given in the Genesis 1 story. God makes beings that image him and then gives them oversight of the earth's flourishing, kind of on a, on a macro scale. Don't miss this. Their task within creation is directly related to their status as images of God the Creator. In other words, how humans express their nature as God's images is through their care for God's creation. You with me so far? And we could camp right there. There's a lot that could be said right there, but camera B is still rolling. And so it's bringing us another view that's a little more up close and personal. Here in Genesis 2, God creates the first man by making a human shape out of dirt and then breathing life into this mud man. God doesn't put a soul inside a body. Instead, God breathes into the dirt and this dirt becomes a living soul. Then, probably in order to draw the significance of human sexuality and relationships and a whole bunch of stuff going on, the second generation, uh, Genesis story separates the creation of the, the male and the female, whereas Genesis 1, where we're back so far, it looks like they're all together. But before God creates the woman, 
not from the dirt, but from Adam's rib, expressing her oneness in relationship with him, we hear this. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden. Why? Why did he place him there? To tend and watch over it. So let's get this straight. God makes a man, and then even before he makes a woman, he puts him in a garden to do what? I don't know what this says about the relationship of food and sex. I was thinking about that. I won't go there. He's placed in the garden to tend and watch over it. The man was made, get this, and then he's immediately given important work. A task within God's creation that specifically relates to the earth's continued growth and flourishing. Here's how I see the breakdown of kind of camera A and camera B. In Genesis 1, it's all about filling and governing. And God's human images are responsible for, you could, you, at the larger level, kind of global flourishing. There's an emphasis in this on expansion and oversight. It's a macro scale. It's, it's seen from way up. And this is about humans who are, who are thinking and reflecting and acting with care, with responsibility, with a deep sense of stewardship and concern, understanding their place in creation, and acting with insight and with understanding about how everything that they do and how everything that happens affects everything else. This is ecology at its best. Genesis 2, as it zooms in, seems to emphasize the tending, the watching over. These God-breathed earthlings are responsible for local flourishing, with an emphasis on protection, conservation, and cultivation. This is man working his plot of ground, tending to his trees, naming, managing his animals, walking his land with gentle, godly care. Why do I start here? Why do we start here? Because we can't fully understand God's call to serve without understanding our original purpose as God's servants in his world. All of our service in the name of Jesus happens within the world of Jesus, within his creation. And we actually can't serve God without caring for his creation. This is more than just platitudes. We don't care for creation because it's the fad or the hippy-dippy thing to do. We don't. We serve God's creation because we're obedient his word. For millennia, Christians have proclaimed that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In Psalm 24, we read and proclaim that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And time and time and time again, through scripture, passage upon passage, we're reminded that everything that was created was created by Jesus, was created for Jesus, gives glory to the Father, that Jesus holds all of creation together. Caring for creation is an act of obedient service to the Father. Expressing our most fundamental responsibility as God's human images. But more than that, when we care for the earth, we also care for the earth's inhabitants. We often miss the fact that, especially where we are, insulated, isolated, we miss the fact that it's the poorest on the planet who suffer the most when the earth is harmed. 
when water is contaminated, when, when animal habitats are destroyed, when stocks are overfished, when erosion rips away precious soil, it's the poor who pay the most and pay first. I remember sharing a workshop with Dave Toyson, the former president of, of World Vision Canada, and hearing him share about how um, World Vision had ha- has had to dramatically increase their preparation for response to natural disasters, particularly because of climate change. These events and their devastation have just gone up in a sharp arc, and he showed us the stats to go along with it. The reality is degradation, climate change, all these things hurt the most vulnerable in the world first. Drought, heat, deforestation, monocropping, soil depletion, you name it. All of it impacts the poor long before we even hear about it. They live on the margins already. And when those margins are gone, they suffer. God didn't intend his world to work this way. And we come to understand that caring for God's planet and caring for God's people are not separate activities. We care for others by caring for the home they live in, which happens to also be the home we live in. You know, there's an old cliche that says it's the only home we have. But as God's word shows, it's also the only home that God gave us responsibility for. It's the only one he put under our care. So what do we do with that? Well, I think we respond in a whole bunch of different unique ways. We're all different people. We have different skills. We have different passions, different experiences, different concerns, different resources. We come and live in different situations. I don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all approach. Some of you love the garden. Some of you capture God's beauty through photography. Some of you are hooked on hiking or passionate about pollinators. I like that one. Yeah. Some of you support conservation efforts, and some of you hunt for wild game, which is also an expression of creation care. Think about that one. Some of you lobby for policy changes. Many of you can massive amounts of fruit. Don't you? Because you're all trying to give it away about this time of year, and you realize you've put too much away. How we obey God's call to care for his earth can look very, very different. We need to lean into God's call and simply explore what that might look like in our lives. And we do that without guilt or judgment. We do that with a deep sense of our our privilege and our responsibility to God. The amazing thing about living in in the Crescent Valley is that we all live a bit closer to creation than the average person. Oh, I think we forget that. We've lived here a while and we kind of, Forget what it's like out there, if I dare say it that way. Many of you live very earth-carefully, very creation-caring, even if you don't, never thought of it in those terms. What's normal for many of us can seem pretty extreme outside the valley. I mean, what, what's pretty normal for some of you, you describe it to one of your city friends. You describe it to uh, somebody you know in Toronto, and they think you are way out there. But it's normal life here in the valley. And I think that actually gives us an incredible opportunity, not only to care for God's earth, but to actually lead the church, larger church, toward greater service to God's world, both the planet and the people. It's one of the reasons I love living here. There's so many different ways that we can care for God's world. There's even surprising ways that we can do that. And today, 
I have a treat for you. I've invited one of our own to share about the unique way she has been serving God, particularly influencing people to care for God's earth. Val Comer is one of ours. I'm going to invite her to come. She's going to join me here. Val's married to Jim. She's the mother of two, grandmother of three. I got that right. And she's a longtime resident in the valley. You're going to have to turn it on the bottom there, Val. I will come join you. She's a longtime resident of the Valley. She's a full-time writer. She's published 14 books. A lot of you probably don't know that. Books which have won awards. And I believe this one's up for an award, is it not? Yes, this is her latest book. Up for an award. And Oh, it's not the latest. I can't keep up. But this one's up for an award. Should be green in the bottom. Try that. You have to hold it. Yes. Okay. So not the latest one, but it is up for an award. And, and you know what? I won't. Uh, this is not a spoiler. This is a teaser. It even features the Alpha program in this. It, does it not? It does. Uh, I wrote it while uh, teaching Alpha last winter. Yeah, brilliant. So and it why, just found its way in. Why do I want you to hear from Val? Because I actually think it's good to hear from someone who's not only expressing her call to care for creation in God's world, but is also doing it in a creative and a surprising way. And I think through her experience, we'll be encouraged by what we hear. Um, are we too loud there? And we'll be inspired to think creatively about our service as we hear her. So, uh, Val, are you having problems here? Is it, is it us? Should I give her a, a microphone that's wired instead? Yeah, let's do that. I'll shut that one off, Val. Are we on? No, it doesn't have a button. You should. No good. button? I'm no good. Button. <laughs> All right, thanks. So, Val, tell us how you became an author. By writing things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is going to be difficult. Um, I was always a reader from small child on up. Uh, wasn't much entertainment in our rural Manitoba town. Um, I always thought it would be kind of interesting to write books, but I thought that you had to be like a really special person to do something like that. Um, I kind of always thought about it and, you know, enjoyed creative writing classes and so forth, but writing an actual novel, just, I I had no idea how to start, what to do. And um, in 2002, I landed a job at Creston Interiors. Uh, Some of you may remember it. It's been closed for four years now, almost. Um, And I had lots of time on my hands, which was not a bad thing. The business was doing well. Don't blame me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it did give me lots of time. And they were just happy if I could entertain myself between customers coming in and phone calls and sales reps and freight being dropped off. And so I bought a second-hand computer, so I didn't have to, I didn't have a laptop then, and just began to the process of learning how to write. And um, it, it took me about a year to write the first one, and then uh, I, I've never opened it again since, I'll be really honest. I learned two important things. I learned that I could get to 100,000 words. And I learned that I needed to learn more about how to do it. <laughs> um, so um, I haven't looked back. Um, 
I wrote about a novel a year for the first few years, started entering contests and uh, finaling in them, and um, starting to f- get some confidence and looking for an agent and um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Awesome. You have published 14 books now. They all have to do, I think your tagline is where food meets faith, faith and, fiction. and fiction. Got that? Where food meets faith and fiction. And what I think is fascinating is that you integrate three things that I don't know that we would have put together. So that would be romance, faith, and then caring for creation, but particularly through the expression of the local food movement. And uh, I I, I just kind of want to know how those three things came together. (laughs) How did that happen? Well, the uh, the first few books that I wrote um, in the back of Crested Interiors were speculative fiction, fantasy, and science fiction. But this was in the day when you had to have an agent to get a publisher, and um, they just there was just no um, there were no openings for speculative fiction from a Christian point of view. And so one day I sat down and I said, um, "Okay, I would really like to be published. So what else can I write?" And I looked across all the genres and immediately discarded things like mysteries or suspense and thrillers because it's not my thing at all. And historical sounded like it would take too much research. Um, so I settled on contemporary romance and began researching that, reading more in the genre and learning what other people were doing. But there was a lot of there was a lot of city based at that time. Uh, the women, you know, were dressed to the nines with their heels and their designer handbags and, you know, were lawyers or whatever. Um, and I knew I could not pull that off. <laughs> so I didn't even try. I started praying about where I could meet contemporary romance and, and how it would look. And then, uh, and then I had a dream. I honestly did. <laughs> um, and... Um, I dreamt that I had written this three-book series and that I had gone to a conference that I had been to before and pitched this idea to an editor that I had, in fact, pitched other books to before and that she was so excited and she bought the series. That was my dream. When I woke up in the morning, I remembered it. Now, that's really unusual for me. But as I lay there staring at the ceiling, I thought, not only that, but I remember the idea, what, what the series was about. So I was pretty excited about that, and I began to, and I wrote the first draft of that novel that summer, went to the conference in September, and she turned it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so much for dreams. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it got me started. And, um, and then through um, selling another book to an, another publisher, I, I got an agent, and she began to really... Um, show this other series that I'd been working on to publishers and they were we had some really really nice rejection letters um, in which they said um, we really like this we like her style but I don't think we can sell this to people like it's it's just a little too out there and um, so uh, that was kind of a negative at that time but but the fact that they felt that the quality was there um, did really encourage me mm-hmm. to to keep writing. So in my conversation with Val, I understand that the, the genre of Christian romance is quite strong, but it still yeah. strikes me as a surprising platform to somehow bring in in caring for creation. How has 
the platform of Christian romance enabled you to actually raise the question of, of earth care or, or creation care? Well, if you're into reading nonfiction, then you might uh, go to the bookstore or you might go to Amazon or wherever and hunt down a particular topic and you know what you know you want to read it or you know you don't, right? So uh, fiction is very different from that. People read to escape. Um, they read for entertainment, and they're, excuse me, their guards down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I, I try not to, like, pound home the themes at all, although some of my characters are definitely more on that realm than I am, um, Honestly, I don't create them. They do their own thing. Um, then um, it just just seemed like um, that it, it was a natural way to be able to get into people's lives who were not necessarily looking for that, especially at first, and um, challenge them. And, um, I mean, I have one-star reviews on Amazon to prove that People who have read it do not all like it, um, and that that's you know it's fair enough. And my my mantra then is not my target audience, um, but I have managed to strike a chord with many thousands of people, and um, I find that really amazing every single day. Yeah. And you actually get reader emails daily, and uh, through all the things that are said, uh, you've picked up that for some people. I mean, they're challenged in different ways and encouraged in different ways and they respond in different ways. But in particular, you found that there are people who they're actually their way of living and thinking is, has, has been changed or challenged. People have been telling you, uh, particularly to do with creation care or local food or whatever, ways that they've been encouraged. How have you heard that happening? It still amazes me every day when I open my inbox. I mean, I, there are some days where there isn't any reader email and then there's days when there's half a dozen um, it just, it never, I never thought this would happen five years ago. Like, honestly, I, it's really bizarre. Um, but people tell me, first, they tell me that they love the fact that they can, they can trust me as an author, that it's not going to have anything in it that they don't want to read. And um, many of them say that um, I've challenged them spiritually through some of the books. And and then I get emails that say, thanks to you, we're putting in a garden. Thanks to you, we visited the farmer's market the other day. Thanks to you, I looked at where all those fruit and vegetables in the grocery store came from, what country they came from. And just even getting people to think at all, to me, is, um, is amazing and really helpful. Awesome. Through this whole series, of course, we're exploring all the different ways and, and m- or many different ways that people you know, are using their gifts to serve. And I just a b- bit of a broader question. How do you see this is our, our, our last question. How do you see your writing in particular as an act of service to God and to others? Well, he's called me to it. Um, he's given me a platform, which, like I said, is still very strange to me. Um, but. More than that, um, I, I honestly feel that writing for me is more of an act of worship than an act of service, but mm-hmm. I guess that kind of goes hand in hand mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of writers outline heavily before they begin writing, mm-hmm. 
And I really tried. I tried so hard. I, I like to be organized in real life. I, I really do. I don't like loose ends. And I think God just smiled at me and said, I know why you can't, why you can't outline. And, and I, by can't, I mean it's just like a black wall in front of me. I don't see what's going to happen usually until I've typed the words and then I stare at them. So I know that's kind of really weird to people who don't write, <laughs> but it's true. Um, but the, I think what the message that God had for me through that part was simply that every morning when I open my, my document and prepare to write the next chapter or two, I don't know what's coming next. So I have to ask God. I have to ask him to guide me and to to begin to prepare the readers that he knows this book because now I know people are actually reading them when before it was there was no such confirmation. <laughs> um, so to know what the readers needed and what he wanted me to say to them through this story, how I could make a difference in their lives in what, whatever way he wants. And so it's, uh, I think that if I could outline, I would be far more inclined to say, hey, I wrote a good book. People like it. And because I have trouble with that and I'm very dependent on, on the Lord every day for it, it's more like God put this story through my fingertips. Hmm. And one, one thing we skipped over sorry, <laughs> is the last thing I said about my writing journey was that I kept getting rejections and you, you never found out how I got to 14 books. Mm. <laughs> but in, um, early in this decade, independent publishing became a thing. Mm. And um, so in 2014, I began to publish my own books through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and iBooks, as well as create uh, paperbacks through a print-on-demand publisher. And um, so being completely free to set my own schedule and so forth, I've, uh, I just jumped in with the first couple of books and hoped for the best. And, um, and that has led to 14 titles in the last three years, um, most of them having been written in the last three years. I kind of do nothing else. <laughs> I bet. <coughs> you know, uh, thank you, Val. I, what I want you to notice is that I love what you said um, about worship. The fact that as you offered your gifts to God and as an expression of worship, that God somehow at the very same time, the prayer is how God will use your gifts to serve others, like the people who are reading, that they will hear what God has for them. And I want you to notice that connection. So worshiping God, serving others, and then in your case, it's actually also serving God's creation. Like there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a dynamic at work. And I think what I love about this is in a, such a surprising, unique way. Now, maybe there are some of you out there that are called to write Christian romance. Let me know. We'll but, talk. But it just... Dave, I don't, I don't know if that's your calling. I don't think it is. There are men who do, and there's a surprising number of men who read my books and, and email me. So Dave could then. He could. Yes, yes you could read them. And, and, you know, but what I point out there is how unique it is that each one of us, with the gifts that we've been given, 
offering them to God and allowing him to use us, it finds such unique and beautiful expression. Doesn't it? And and I hope you hear that. This is one beautiful story, and I hope you're encouraged by that and, 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 uh, you know, inspired. But now you can take this and multiply it and recognize that we all have been given gifts. We all are called to serve. And as we worship God, he uses us to serve others, to serve his world. It's beautiful. Thanks, Val. Thank you. Well, what do we do now? Jesus has activated us for his service. That's just true. I think there's three questions as we finish, and then we move toward our time of communion. And based on our answers to these questions, it really determines our steps, the steps that we can take. My first question is quite simple. Do you agree? Or do you disagree? It starts here, actually. So first, for those of you who disagree... I'm sure there's a few of you. I want to I challenge you to figure out why. Why do you disagree? Why do you push back? What is it? I want to challenge you because somehow, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim the scripture as your guidance, somehow we've got to figure out what it means that God has called us to be his images in creation. What does that mean for you? And so if you find yourself today pushing back, thinking, oh my goodness, this is like whatever. I understand that. I really do. And so I want to challenge you. Take that as a sign from God. He's calling you to figure this out. Be more clear in your mind, more clear in your heart, so that you can say with confidence and conviction, this is how I'm following Jesus in obedience to his word, particularly with response to creation. If you disagree, if you agree, Wherever you're at on the spectrum, wherever you sit, if you agree, then my question is, what's one area where you can deepen your service to God by caring for his creation? What's one area? I can't prescript that for you. I can't tell you what that looks like for you. It looks very different for each one of us. It expresses itself in a lot of different ways. But I do want to challenge you to identify an area of your life where you can deepen your sense of call, your obedience, and express that in the care of God's creation. And then my third question is is, is actually kind of a strange one. I hinted at it a little earlier. Here's my question. How can we, situated where we are, in the Creston Valley, in one of the most fertile, beautiful places. You know, you just can kind of drive down the road and plant fruit in the ditches, right? It just happens around here. Stuff grows crazy high, and there's way too much of it, and our counters are covered, and we wander around in this just this amazing, abundant valley. Here is where God has called us. And so my question is, how can we grow... Now, as a congregation, I'm talking, how can we grow not only in our care for creation, but, this might be a new thought for us, in the influence that we can have on the larger church? I know that a lot of us feel like we're in backwater nowhere. We're kind of hoping people don't notice where we live because we love it so much. that we feel like we're small, and what kind of influence could we possibly have, right? Well, actually, profound influence. 
And so my question is, how can we as the Erickson Covenant Church grow, acknowledging where we are in this unique place, acknowledging the gifts that lie latent within us, the abilities that we have? How can we grow our influence in the larger church around serving God by caring for his good earth? I throw that out like a seed onto Creston soil, (laughs) praying that it will bear fruit in us. It's with this creation call in mind that we move to our time of communion. You know, at the table of grace, Jesus took common food grown from common ground, taking the fruits of his good creation and using them as invitations into new creation. The bread baked from seeds planted in God's good earth, wine that grew up into this glorious, ripe fruit, squeezed and then aged to perfection, both signs of the coming kingdom, indicators of God's grace. Signs of Jesus' communion with us. You ever found it interesting that it's these elements, these simple, everyday, common elements, foods that are grown in normal soil, virtually anywhere things can grow, that Jesus would offer these as means of receiving his goodness and his grace every time we remember him? The earth is the Lord's. Everything that is in it is his. And Jesus invites us into his grace to follow him in his world. And he does, he does that every time we do it through two simple elements from his creation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And then he offered to them and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. And after he blessed it, he said, this is, my, this is the new covenant. It's been made with my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our invitation today is to come and receive from the hands of our brothers and sisters this invitation from Jesus into his grace and to do so by taking bread and juice. There's even gluten-free options. As ways of responding to the call of Jesus into his life of service. He served us. He serves us today at the table. And now we come to receive. I'm going to pray. And then those who are serving communion are going to come and meet me at the table And then you're invited to come and receive as you want to. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your invitation into life. We're thankful that through bread and juice, we can remember, we can worship, we can receive your grace and strength and courage to follow you in this life of service you've called us into. Today, we don't come glibly. We don't come out of ritual. We come responsive to your grace saying yes to your love, saying yes to the life you've called us into. In your name we pray. Amen.